The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, happy Monday, everybody. You're watching Squawk Box with Karen Cho, Jeff Cutmore and myself, Steve Sedgwick. And these are your headlines. Shares in HSBC falling to their lowest level since 1995 in Hong Kong as the bank is implicated alongside Barclays, Deutsche Bank, JP Morgan and others in a series of leaked documents detailing alleged suspicious fund transactions. More time for TikTok. The White House grants the Chinese social media group another week to seal a deal with Oracle and Walmart as President Trump gives the tie-up his blessing but says ByteDance must create a $5 billion U.S. education fund. It'll be a brand new company. Uh, it will have nothing to do with uh, any outside land, any outside country. Uh, it will have nothing to do with China. It'll be totally secure. Tributes pour in for Ruth Bader Ginsburg as the death of the Supreme Court justice triggers campaign tension, with President Trump saying he will replace her next week, while Joe Biden accuses him of abuse of power. Parts of Madrid return to lockdown amid rising infections across Europe, while France reports around 24,000 new cases over the weekend, as Finance Minister Bruno Le Maire tests positive. Oh, good morning, Karen. How are you? Good morning. Nice to see Very you. Very nice Boston. to see you too. I see our new set is tantalisingly over there and we're still over here. Oh, it's fabulous. We sat on it the other day and had a bit of a look. Uh, did you? Are you mm. very excited by it? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's quite um, sharp. It's there and we're here. Right. But anyway, something to tantalise our viewers with anyway. So you're well, lots of news over the weekend. Yeah. Amazing amount of news over the weekend. Lots of coronavirus infections rising again and obviously you talk of lockdowns, national lockdowns, which is quite a shock because we're talking about regionalised, you know, compartmentalising areas if there are infection spikes, mm. not a national lockdown. So clearly that's a bit of a game changer if it happens. I, see, I think that this debate which is happening in the UK cabinet, in the French government, in the US and everywhere is absolutely key to the next six months because there are those who say we have to put COVID-19 front and foremost again. Now, again, I'm not saying if that's right or wrong, but it has to be um, the key part of our economic and social policy going forward. There are those who are saying we have to nuance this. We have to say the economy cannot have a full lockdown. We cannot afford a full lockdown. We just have to cope in the best way possible because there are other parts of the economy which will have enormous health and social and financial detrimental effects if we allow them to run right. Well, we saw the consequences here of lockdown, much longer lockdown than in other places. And as a result, the economic consequences were more severe, even though you saw much shorter timeframes, more severe lockdowns lockdowns in other countries, that seemed to be more effective than what we did here in the UK. So the question as we debate whether another national lockdown is necessary at this point, you know, how long does it go on for and what other measures are in place, like mask wearing, we're just discussing on the weekend. We were just discussing you know, that, yeah. The fact that wait staff are not all wearing masks in restaurants. Some places you have to go to, like into a shop and you have to wear a mask, you can sit in a restaurant all evening yeah. without in interacting with staff. My experience, and it's only anecdotal, is that uh, mask etiquette is fantastic in 99.9% of places I go. And people have been really, really good at this as well. My real worry about the longer term is that COVID-19 is devastating. We know it's stunningly infectious. Thankfully, the mortality rate is 
incredibly low compared with illnesses or diseases such as Ebola. But my worry is about a whole host of other issues as well, which are really not getting the attention they should. And, and I'm going to stick right at the top of that mental health issues as well. I think they are enormous and we need to really think about that side of what this whole epidemic pandemic has done to us. But we'll carry on with this conversation because, as I mentioned to Karen, there's one or two other stories, including... Shares in HSBC and Standard Chartered trading sharply lower in Hong Kong following reports claiming uh, the banks allowed criminals to move billions of dollars over two decades despite a series of red flags. The two banks were identified alongside several others, uh, other lenders in a series of leaked suspicious activity reports um, known as FinCEN files. Now, in a statement to CNBC, HSBC said it did not comment on suspicious activity reporting, adding it has worked to overhaul its capacity to fight financial crime. Standard Chartered said it had also invested heavily in compliance systems. Deutsche Bank, though, accounts for almost two thirds of all SAR suspicious activity reports leaked in the so-called FinCEN files. The German lender was reportedly aware of over $1 trillion worth of suspicious transactions that moved through its accounts over the past two decades. Deutsche Bank says the issues raised in the leaks are already known to regulators and that it has responded accordingly. Well, there are many, many questions arising from this. So, Annetta, thank you very much indeed for joining us early on the show this morning. Look, how much of this was already known uh, to the public, to Deutsche Bank, to the regulators? And how much are we learning that's brand new here as well, given the fact that it's not the first time we've talked about uh, allegations, about illegal activities in accounts uh, of Deutsche Bank and others? Good morning to you. Well, good morning to you, Steve. I guess the sheer fact that Deutsche Bank was part of that gigantic, what they call Russian laundromat, uh, was quite known for years now. They have been fined and they've paid their fine. But I think what is crucial in that report now, who actually was in the know about that happening because previously Deutsche Bank always was saying it was just like a tiny group of people based in Moscow who actually organized those mirror trades for Russian uh, criminals for the most part uh, to funnel their money into the Western system and wash it uh, literally. Um, but that might not be true. The report now is saying that also the likes of Paul Achtleitner, of course, which who is the head of the supervisory board of Deutsche Bank, was in the know about what it was happening and did not do anything about it. And even more interesting, Christian Seving at the time was head of audit at Deutsche Bank and he should have known as well what's happening, uh, what's happening at the Moscow office. So I guess Deutsche Bank has to address those questions whether the personnel right now in place, which had been there already at the time when Deutsche Bank was uh, doing those things, um, is actually uh, was in the know or whether this this report is not true because clearly it is damaging their reputation as being the right person at the top of Deutsche Bank. With that, Steve, I'm sending it back to you.
Uh, Neta, I'll pick it up. And uh, we're obviously seeing big moves in the Asian markets too in some of those stocks, uh, the likes of HSBC and Standard Chartered. And uh, Jeff, I want to get to you because, you know, what we've effectively seen in some of these allegations, to me, it's about the, the scale of the transactions, two trillion worth of suspicious trades that have been flagged up, but also dating from 1999, which is fairly old, but to 2017, which is fairly recent. So we talk about all the regulatory changes. They sort of ask the question, how is this still happening at this point? Well, is it still happening? And that, that's the, the question among so many, Karen, that I think we need answers to at this point. Because as you made clear there, the two trillion that we're talking about was flagged up ultimately by the internal compliance departments of the financial institutions themselves as suspicious. And I think that's something, if that is true, that we need to take comfort in that actually the mechanism for flagging up uh, wrongful transactions appears to have been working. The other point I would just make here is this this leak ultimately comes from documentation from the US Department of the Treasury. So the US authorities apparently were perfectly clear about what actually had taken place at this point, which again is, I think, another important matter because it tells us that the authorities were actually in the know in terms of what was being flagged up by the bank's own compliance departments. Now, we know that there is a litany of oligarchs, of drug dealers, of uh, Middle Eastern middlemen, perhaps, who would like to use the official banking system as a route to channel ill-gotten gains. I don't think there's any doubt about that at all. And as we've watched billions of dollars of fines placed on these banks over recent years, it's clear that they have been sanctioned when it's been felt appropriate. I mean, of late, we're obviously talking about uh, Deutsche Bank and uh, money laundering fines that are still going through the process here. So on the one hand, there is the wow factor, I think, about this big data dump of information that the general public wasn't aware of. But on the other side of this coin, I think we still need to see questions answered as to how poorly the banks actually reacted to this information. Because on the face of it, with the limited facts we have at this point, it would seem that the bank's own departments flagged up the issues, which were then dealt with by the Treasury Department. So still a lot of question marks here, but perhaps the market reaction today is the right reaction. We'll have to wait and watch. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Jeff, and I, and I, and I note your, your scepticism about whether this is current activity or, or historic as well. I've read as much as I can about this over the last 24 hours, and, and one article I thought was very interesting was the Times article, actually, uh, today, and it's basically saying, look, as you quite rightly say, they were flagged up internally, which I think is great. You know, it's not the auditors turning around saying it's not our job uh, to flag this stuff up, as we're seeing, dare I say it, with one uh, recent tech story out of Germany as well, with the auditors saying, oh, are we have, have we got the policing role as well? Well, of course you have. You're the auditors as well. Uh, but they are saying, A, they were flagged up internally. B, these are historic and we've changed our ways. C, we can't legally uh, tell you our side of the story because many of these potentially are about accounts that um, may be still being uh, investigated as well. Uh, and D, sometimes they're saying the authorities wanted 
these accounts to remain open so that they can actually trace where the money laundering was going. So you flag this up internally. You tell the U.S. authorities, look, I think this is going on. The U.S. authorities can say, right, you either close this down straight away because it looks like it's money laundering or two. Actually, no, we want to almost, dare I say, it, put a trace on, on where this money is coming to and from so we can follow that criminal activity. So there's a whole other side to this, which the Times article is pointing out. The question, though, for me is whether much has changed behind the scenes. The article that I've been reading from BuzzFeed are effectively flagging up that some of the banks did not know their clients at all, that they were they were Googling to find out who were behind some of these complex transactions or who were behind these shell companies. Mm. And there's only so much you can find on Google, effectively, if someone wants to hide the evidence, wants to hide information from you. So I think the regulators will want to know just whether the banks actually do know their clients. And we know that's been a very strong theme for the banking community. Just a final point for me is that if you look at the bank trades in Europe, they've all been trading on hopes of some form of consolidation. You certainly see a little bit of appetite back in the trade, finally, as there have been attempts in the likes of Spain and also Italy to consolidate banks. And if you turn your attention to the likes of Deutsche Bank, can you believe it's actually positive 10% year to date? I mean, not all the stocks out there have recovered territory to be positive this year. And I think that's quite a strong trade when you think about the performance of this bank over time with so many issues. I, I, I guess that, that, that is impressive. And yet Deutsche Bank, if you look at a longer term chart, and I don't know if our uh, wonderful production team have got a two to five year chart of Deutsche available. But it is one of the most appallingly rated banks mean. on the planet. And on a price to book ratio, you do really have to work very hard to find uh, a lesser rated bank. And there you can see uh, the last two years, it is down 21%. Uh, Jeff, I think you're picking up. Yeah, guys. Yeah, absolutely. And I would just finish by saying, look, the last time we saw one of these big data dumps to um, journalistic organizations was obviously the Panama Papers uh, a few years ago. And whilst there were one or two very notable scalps, mostly I think it was uh, just a lot of red faces and a lot of embarrassment. And um, it'll be just be interesting to see how this uh, story unfolds here, because obviously the uh, news organizations have a lot of information to work through here. Um, it'll be interesting to see whose names get thrown up as we uh, pick our way through this story. Um, talking about uh, complicated stories, let's move on and just talk about this TikTok deal. So President Trump continues to make the running on this story. He's approved in concept TikTok's deal with Oracle and Walmart, saying that it guarantees national security and completely separates the video apps U.S. operations from China. Under the terms, Oracle and Walmart will split a 20% slice of the newly formed TikTok global business, which will operate the video apps operations outside of China. But President Trump raised concerns by claiming parent company ByteDance would create a $5 billion education fund as part of that deal. The security will be 100%. They'll be using separate clouds and a lot of very, very powerful security. And uh, they'll be making about a $5 billion contribution toward education. And we're going to be setting up a uh, very large fund toward the education of American youth. And that'll be great. That's their contribution that I've been asking for. But we'll see whether or not it all happens. But uh, conceptually, I think it's a great deal for America. They'll be hiring at least 25,000 people. It'll most likely be incorporated in Texas. It'll be a brand new company. Uh, it will have nothing to do with uh, any outside land, any outside 
country. Uh, it will have nothing to do with China. It'll be totally secure. President Trump there. Well, of course, nothing is simple in this story. Bite dancers muddied the waters saying TikTok Global would be its subsidiary. Uh, this despite Walmart and Oracle saying they, together with other U.S. investors, would own the majority of the new company after the deal has been completed. ByteDance said it would initially own 80% of the new business, but confirmed plans for a future IPO. Uh, well, fortunately, we have someone who can help, help us uh, understand exactly what this new structure looks like. Arjun joins us from uh, southern China with more on this. Arjun, I hope you have some clarity on the new structure here because it looks increasingly complicated given the competing claims we're getting from both the Chinese and the American side. We're just having some problems there with Arjun's line, but uh, clearly... Do we, do we his line or he hasn't got a mic on? I don't know. I always wonder about it. I could definitely hear something. Well, I, I'm sure he's <laughs> checking his microphone Does that come now. under technical problems? We've all, done the, we've all done that before. We've all had technical problems where our microphone's not on. Do you know, the, the gallery normally pick it up when I've forgotten my mic. <laughs> oh, do you know, apparently, uh, apparently his technical problems are finished, Karen. Is that right? Well, let's try and see if he's there again. Arjun. Uh, it's on. Hello. Hello in London, can you hear me? We've got you. It's not the Eurovision so Song just pick Contest, up get the on point with it. Here. <laughs> Let me just pick up the point here. Oracle with a 12.5% stake in the company will be the trusted cloud provider, which has seemed to address the national security concerns brought up by the US. Meanwhile, Walmart will take a 7.5% stake in this company. But ByteDance coming out this morning and saying that it will own 80% of this new TikTok global company after they do a pre-IPO funding round, essentially hitting back at claims from the Trump administrations that, that this will be an American-owned uh, company. So what we have here is a situation where ByteDance still insisting that it will control uh, what is at stake here. Now, the reason I think the Trump administration is claiming that this will be a majority-owned U.S. company is because 40% of ByteDance is owned by American investors. So the administration can, can claim just over 50% of this new entity has been backed by US money. So that's where we're at right now. And going forward, uh, there was a, a, a statement made by both Oracle and Walmart that $5 billion worth of taxes would go to the US Treasury. Remember, Trump made a uh, claim earlier saying that he hopes part of uh, this deal would result in a cut of money for the US government. But ByteDance against contesting this claim, saying that this is just a forecast of corporate tax and income tax that will be paid by the company over the next few years and is no guarantee because it depends very much on how the business performs. So we've got somewhat of a loose structure as it stands, some competing claims. But I think going forward, what we have is a situation where TikTok Global will be majority owned by ByteDance with minority stakes from Oracle and Walmart. Guys, back to you. Arjun, thank you very much. Coming up on the show, mourners in the United States pay respects to Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but a battle looms over her replacement. Uh
Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. Karen, I think we should pick the best of every culture in the world and just stick them together as well. One of the best things about the Japanese culture is their respect for their elders and the elderly. And that's why they've got a national holiday today. We don't have one in the United Kingdom. In fact, we treat our older people appallingly, by and large, as well. But today is respect for the aged day. It's Seniors Day, established in 1966, apparently, to express respect for elders in the community and to recognise and thank them for their contributions to society and celebrate their long lives as well. It's lovely, isn't it? It is a lovely holiday. What's, what's the equivalent to... in the UK, do you think? What's, oh, what's the God big... knows. I mean, we just <laughs> treat our elderly people, by and large, appalling. I'm not, there are notable exceptions, anyway. So that is why the Japanese markets are not open today, anyway. So should we have a look at what the rest uh, of the Asian indices are doing? Uh, this isn't all of them, by the way. I should hasten to point out. Hang Seng down. We've talked about that one as well with HSBC, already under a bit of pressure. Elsewhere on mainland China, the Shanghai and the Shenzhen Composites are both in negative territory, although by not like, large margins. And the Kospi, under a little bit of pressure seven tenths of one percent easier u.s markets last week as well what do you think the dow did last week absolutely nothing it didn't feel like it did it up and uh, down really not by uh, at all it was actually fat as a pancake but although as you can see on friday it did lose some ground uh, the s p week to date was down 0.64 of one percent the uh, the Nasdaq lost six tenths. The Russell 2K actually gained 2.6 percent. Whether it's a short-term rotation or not, that is above my pay grade. But there certainly was a rotation going on there last week as well. Safe to say, last week the asset class of choice, no doubt about it. WTI was up 10.1 percent last week. Karen, it's usually always a winner, isn't it? Well, thousands of mourners gathered outside the U.S. Supreme Court this weekend to remember the life of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg following her death from cancer aged 87. The judge was first nominated to the high court by former President Bill Clinton in 1993, serving on there for nearly three decades. Ginsburg was known as one of the bench's most prominent liberal voices and a champion of women's rights. President Trump has vowed to nominate Ginsburg's replacement next week in a bid to secure Senate approval before the November election. Democrats say the decision violates a precedent set in 2016 when Republicans blocked a nominee put forward by President Barack Obama due to an upcoming election. Two Republican senators also voiced opposition to the move, with Alaska's Lisa Murkowski saying that the standard set four years ago must apply now. Peter Dribowitz, a professor of international relations, uh, joins us now. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Peter. Let me uh, come to you on the back of some of uh, the uh, furor over the weekend. Uh, joining us from the LSE today, Majority of Americans, in particular some Republicans as well, want the winner of the November election to name the successor to uh, the justice, uh, to, to Ginsburg. What do you think of the timing here? Should we see some sort of waiting it up period till after the election? Um, well, I, I don't think that we'll see Trump and, uh, and Senate Majority Leader McConnell wait. I mean, if the question is, should we wait? Yeah, I come down on the side of, yeah, we should probably wait and put this on ice for a while. Uh, but I, I think they will try to seize the moment here. Um, they have 
somewhat different interests, Trump and, and McConnell. Uh, I think Trump will want to put out a nominee uh, sometime this week. That's what he's saying he's going to do. I think for McConnell, this is more a timing question, whether or not he tries to push this before the actual election or wait till afterwards. And I think the fundamental question there is whether or not he thinks it's going to win or lose on the Senate. And that's a tough call, not an easy call. And it probably explains why McConnell asked everybody in his caucus to keep their powder dry until he had a chance to talk to him. Peter, if Republicans push through another lifetime appointee here, they will cement a six to three conservative majority on the court. What does that mean? What are the ramifications? Um, well, I mean, the, the ramifications for a lot of, uh, there are a lot of issues pending. For example, Obamacare is on the docket and will be taken up right after the November um, election. Um, so I think for Obamacare, for abortion, I mean, for health care, for, um, for abortion, for guns rights, these are issues that are um, just hot button political issues in the United States that the courts will be weighing in on over the next uh, few years. And if the court moves uh, in a very conservative direction, it's already, uh, you know, ha has moved in that direction. If it goes further, uh, it's just going to polarize the country even more. And I think, you know, the how McConnell approaches this, Trump and McConnell approaches it, I think also will fuel, may very well fuel uh, calls for expanding the size of the court, moving from a nine-member Supreme Court to an 11-member or even perhaps um, the proposal that was put out there by Pete Buttigieg during the Democratic campaign to go up to 15. Peter, good morning to you. The, the national polls still seem to give Biden a slight edge at this point. Um, to what extent is this issue of the Supreme Court one that will galvanize uh, undecided voters at this point to go one way or the other? Uh, at the moment, it feels like it's quite a technical issue for most Americans who are more concerned about whether there's going to be another round of stimulus, perhaps, and whether they're going to get a paycheck this week. Well, I, I agree with you, Jeff. In fact, there was a poll by Wall Street Journal and NBC over the over the weekend that shows that 90 percent of Americans have already made up their minds and they're not going to be it's not going to be changed by the debates or anything else that nevertheless leaves 10 percent and 10 percent, you know, in this race matters. I think at the end of the day, what this will do is it will fire up uh, Trump's base, um, especially, um, and it will matter in some key Senate races. But having said that, it's also very clear that this is going to fire up the Democratic base. I mean, we saw over the weekend, it's unbelievable, the hall that uh, Act Blue, the Democratic fundraising organization, recorded. Um, my guess is that Trump will make filling Ginsburg's seat the core theme of the remainder of the campaign. Uh, and I say that just because, frankly, it's the best card he has in what uh, is a fairly lousy hand. Law and order has not moved the needle. It's not obvious that this will move the needle with, um, uh, with independent or undecided voters. But I think if, if the other stuff is, they're throwing spaghetti at the wall right now and they're looking to see what will stick.
Uh, Peter, good morning to you. We keep talking about morning, the presidential Steve. election, but um, I think this conversation, if anything, has highlighted um, the importance of the Senate uh, voting as Indeed. well. Correct me if I'm wrong, it's 35 seats this time around, normally 33, but we've got Arizona and one other as well because of, of course, the passing of John McCain. Um, right. Tell me, how vulnerable do some of the incumbents look and could there be a swing which would mean that obviously the Democrats could take the Senate as well? Is that likely or not? I think it depends on like uh, on, on the nature of the popular vote in the presidential campaign. If the, if the vote is today, I think the Democrats take the Senate, but it's not today. You know, we've got a very large margin in most of these polls. Um, you know, you have a number of seats that are very tight, Republican-held seats, with Susan Collins in Maine, Cory Gardner in uh, Colorado. Uh, the, the North Carolina seat is also very close, and Arizona is leaning towards the Democrats. So there is a chance that they pick up these seats. And I think this is why this plays, this is a real issue for McConnell, because the question is whether or not he hurts Collins's chances, Gardner's chances, you know, uh, basically Republican chances in in some of these very tight states by pushing this issue right now. I mean, Collins came out immediately and basically tried to take this issue off the table, uh, saying that she thinks this should be decided after the election. Um, so it's very tight in the Senate. And I think the Democrats, I think this is a surprise for everybody. Nobody thought the Democrats would be in the game for the Senate at this point in time. And I think they very much are. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.